We're continuing with this chapter called Understanding Dharma, and we're in the talk uh, entitled The Trapper's Snare. Listening to Dharma, there needs to be understanding. If you have great understanding, there'll be great fruit. If your understanding is little, the fruit will be little. If there is little right view, there will, be a, uh, there will be a lot of suffering. With much right view, suffering will vanish and tranquility will come about. Coming here today, you are seeking spiritual nourishment. We're trying to educate the mind by looking externally and internally. This is called coming to practice Dharma. Throughout this body, Dharma exists. We can see it clearly without having to look far away. When we do see it clearly, there arise dispassion and detachment. There comes world weariness. There is some fear, and the mind chews on it over with concern. Thus the Buddha urged us to look into the realities of birth, ageing, illness and death, to see them according to the law of nature, which is Dharma. So world weariness um, uh, is a... Um, recognizes that as a wholesome psychological state sangvega uh, is a, uh, or sa, uh, in a thai language salok sangvek uh, saloka sangvega is a, uh, a kind of sober sadness when viewing uh, and appreciating the the nature of the world also sangvega uh, means a, a sense of urgency and so that the 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 four holy places in india the um, well in, in Nepal and India, Lumbini, and then <coughs> Bodhgaya and uh, Saranath, where the first Dhamma talk was given with the, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, and then Kusinara, when the, where the uh, Lord Buddha's Parinibbana was, they're called the um, the places that arouse urgency, Sangveganiya Satan in the Thai language, so that uh, they are places of reverence and places to inspire, but it's also that uh, encouragement uh, of urgency. So oftentimes we might think any kind of negativity or, or sadness or uncomfortable feeling is sort of painful and we don't want it, but rather like Hiriotapa, um, the sense of, of moral sensitivity, uh, it works by being uncomfortable, like uh, physical pain protects the body by being unpleasant. <laughs> you, don't, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want more of it, so you act in a way to diminish the painful feelings. So pain works by being unpleasant. Fear works by being unpleasant. So similarly, uh, this world weariness, uh, sangvega, is a um, uh, a kind of sober uh, uh, sober sadness, a, a kind of uh, as a uh, a recognition of whoa, this place is on fire. <laughs> this this is really difficult. This is a this is a not trivial. That um, we need to get serious here, and so that it, it's. It is a, a, a painful quality, but it's a painful quality that's based on profound wholesomeness. And so that uh, uh, oftentimes in the Western world, any kind of melancholy or any kind of sadness is, oh, cheer up, everything's fine. <laughs> no, but uh, it, uh, the, um, uh, <laughs> the presence of a, of a sad feeling or that sense of, of urgency or... Uh, uh, a, a kind of so, a sober view of uh, of the world. Uh, it's not necessarily anything unwholesome or, or radically unpleasant at all. It's just a sense of a recognition of you know, this is this is really a difficult situation. We need to, need to work with this seriously. We need to put attention into this. This is um, this is a, um, a cause for for say paying attention, being concerned, uh, uh, acting skillfully. So, any questions on that before going any further? Yes? Uh, there needs to be not resistance. If there's resistance, we can't recognize the potential in fear or those other unpleasant mm -hmm. states. Can we see? Yes, someone say, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> so that uh, that kind of pushing it away, uh, both sort of. And sometimes when people say, 
people say, how are you? They don't really want to know. It's just a way of greeting you. But it can also be a way that we override those feelings and try to make ourselves feel fine. Um, in, when I was living in California, they, they, one of the ways that the... Um, probably beyond the Buddhist community, within the Buddhist community, when people say, I'm fine, they took it as an acronym for fed up, insecure, neurotic and emotional. <laughs> F-I-N-E. So. <laughs> so there's a bit more of a, a kind of psychologically illuminated uh, community there. Um, but yeah, that, that, but also if self-view gets hold of it, similarly with Hiriotapa, if it becomes something like, I'm a terrible person, I've done something awful, um, world weariness, if, if self-view grasps it and gets caught up in it and the mind uh, proliferates, then it becomes a cause of depression and, and uh, co- genuinely causes much more suffering. And so it loses its, its value because it's, uh, it's sort of been taken over by uh, the effects of ignorance and, and, and grasping. So on its own... But um, that sense of, uh, of hopelessness or the, or the kind of enormity of, of the difficulties of the world, if the mind really gets hold of it, then it can sink into a, a deep pit. Um, so, yes, it's, it's a, a wholesome psychological state, but it needs to be held in a, in a uh, skillful way. There was a story of... Uh, um, uh, Kitty Saro was uh, was a monk at, at the same time as myself. He arrived a couple of years before me at uh, at Wat uh, Pranayashat, and uh, uh, so he's a, a lay Dhamma teacher nowadays, um, and uh, you know, very uh, very much uh, respected and, and uh, well regarded. Um, and so, uh, um, in those early days, he was off staying at a at a branch monastery, Bunkaluang, with. Um, uh, Lumpur Jan, uh, one of Ajahn Chah's senior disciples, and uh, <clears throat> so when he was staying there, he got uh, overwhelmed with this, these feelings of, uh, of sadness and, and uh, despair, and um, the, uh, <clears throat> the, so the the difficulties of of the human condition, and so uh, Lumpur Jan gave him permission to go to to see Lumpur Chah and kind of uh, ask for some advice, and so. Uh, when he went to uh, Bunkalung was a um, I don't know about thirty or forty miles uh, north of of, um, of Wapapong, so not not that far away. Anyway, so the young Tan Kitisara went along to um, to see Lumpocha, and he said, you know, there's uh, I, and he he began by saying something along the lines of, yeah, I, I'm I know I'm never going to smile again. Uh, I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't see how anyone could could ever laugh. Or, uh, I, I just can't. You know, the world is so shocking, so so uh, so terrible and uh, and uh, overwhelmingly painful. It's just I'll never smile again. And then within forty-five minutes, he was literally rolling on the floor, <laughs> kind of clutching himself like with uncontrollable hysterical laughter, um, like. Uh, <laughs> Lumpur, he had he had enough command of the Thai language to be able to understand Lumpur directly, but um, so Lumpur Chia heard this and he was really kind of I wasn't present, but Kitty Saro told me this story many times, and so he was sort of really kind of glum and heavy. I can now never smile again. It's just so it's also you know awful and painful, and so he said Lumpur Chia started talking about this the squirrel. There are a lot of squirrels in the forest in in Thailand, northeast Thailand, Garok. And he was talking about this young squirrel that was trying to learn how to climb trees and jump through the branches. And so Lumpur starts telling this story about how the little squirrel tries to climb and it falls off and it climbs a bit higher and falls off again. And then, and then it sort of gets a bit higher and then it jumps from one branch to another and it falls off. And then and it's kind of developing its skills bit by bit, but it keeps falling. And, it, and every, whenever it falls, it, it, it kind of lands with a thump. But it keeps going, keeps trying. And eventually, after about 40, 45 minutes, this... The squirrel had got a PhD in uh, a kind of in branch branch jumping and uh, athletic skills uh, uh, that are appropriate to squirrels, and and it was so so kind of uh, funny and, and charming and uh, and witty that this monk who was never going to smile again it was convulsing, and you know, and literally, I mean, 
for a junior monk to be in front of the Ajahn, literally, roll, literally rolling on the floor, not, figura- not figuratively, literally rolling on the floor and kind of, kind of having trouble breathing. He was laughing so much that uh, it's like, uh, okay, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna laugh again. <laughs> that Lumpur Cha's skills, like, yes, this kind of sangvega is is appropriate, but you know, your mind has just taken hold of it and just got lost in papancha around it. And the, I think there's an account of that in the, maybe in that book, Seeing the Way. I think that certainly there, there's an account of that somewhere in in, uh, in print. But uh, anyway, it's a, it was a a very good um, uh, example of how you can have that feeling of like life is so awful. I'm so depressed. You know, I can ne- I'll never smile again. There's nothing that could ever console me in any way, whatsoever, way, way shape, or form. In less than an hour, it can be com- flipped around completely. And, and with Lumpur Chai himself, sometimes, um, you know, I was around him sometimes and you could see that uh, sometimes he was, you couldn't tell whether he was laughing or crying, like some somebody would sort of come along with some kind of really dreadful situation they were living in and they kind of got themselves into a horrendous tangle with getting into debt or, or, or fighting with their spouse and then wanting to get back together with the spouse and then fighting again and... and um, and again, you know, they, uh, Lumpur Cha would kind of be helping them with sort of cracking jokes and, and encouraging them. But also at the same time, that this is really pitiful. And is he, is he crying or is he laughing? Is, is he really sort of sad and upset? Or is, he, is, he, or is it all hilarious? And you got this feeling it was actually both at the same time. That there was both that empathy, like, well, people that really get themselves into such incredibly stupid tangles. But it is, it's, it, it's so ridiculous, it's also hilarious as well as being tragic. The kind of tragi-comic quality was, he was quite happy to attune to the whole spectrum of it. Yes, Marisa. So I understand that pain can act like hearing and articulate towards waking us up, and there's this world of weariness that a lack of passion around things that one might have used to care about, but there's also something genuinely really sad about thinking about all the people that you love, all the humans who are struggling, and they're just trapped in this constant cycle of samsara, and they genuinely want to be free, and they're trying to find a way to be happy, and why, I was just running earlier, like, why, I'm sorry for the analogy, it kind of feels like a video game where you know, we figured out, okay, this is the way to be free, but why is it that the baseline, why does that game even exist in the first place? Why aren't we all free to start with? Why do you have to be in this human condition where we're struggling and only a few people are lucky enough to not have that much dust in their eyes and to get to be free and liberated? Like, I don't, that I can't explain, and that for me is more of a genuine sadness. I don't know if you can maybe talk to that. It's sad because you can't explain it? Or? No, it's sad because why, why is it? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, in in terms of Buddhist philosophy, we are born because of avicca, ignorance. That uh, that because of not seeing clearly, uh, the mind is attached to various loves, hates, fears, desires, identities, and so when we are born, uh, then that whole kind of package of attachments and and. Uh, Influences that are ignorant, they they, they come with the, the the with birth, and so that we're uh, and how birth and beings came into existence. Kind of originally, the Buddha said, "Don't even you, it's it's inco- it's inconceivable. It's another of the achintaya, the the uh, the imponderables, the ultimate beginning of things. Like why are there beings?" Uh, why, why, why is there birth and death? The, the Buddha said, "Don't bother trying to figure that out. That's not within the, the realm of concept or, or, uh, or language to to really describe anything meaningful in that area. So just leave it alone." But uh, essentially, it's because of ignorance. That's why we're born. And that when when a being dies, when the, when a life comes to an end, people ask, "Well." what continues from one life to the next? And the short answer is habits. That whatever the mind is attached to and has, uh, loves, hates, fears, feels it owns, is what's familiar, 
that's what creates the momentum for where it will uh, gravitate towards. And then, uh, like we were talking about karma uh, yesterday, I think, so in some way, shape, or form, those habits will will uh, ripen and take uh, take shape in different ways. And so that uh, it, it is pitiful that people uh, want to find happiness and freedom but keep looking for it in the wrong place. But it's, the short answer is avicca, yeah? avicca, pachaya, sankara, ignorance, conditions, formations, and this. If there's if there's avicca, then uh, then the result is always going to be painful. It's, it always leads to dukkha. It's like the Paticca Samuppada is sp- sort of spelling out the the details of that dependent origination. And that, uh, but if there isn't avicca, <laughs> then uh, if the mind is awake to, to this moment, uh, then having been born, I mean, this is what the spiritual potential is, and what why Buddha Dhamma exists in the world, and why a place like Amravati exists, uh, is because. Uh, Birth having happened, and uh, uh, but then also coming into into the human realm, and then being in the human realm when the Buddha's teaching is in the world, and there's a those teachings are preserved, they are practiced, they're a, they're a, a situation to to um, apply those to this body, this mind, and so then it's a, a wonderful and amazing thing that we can uh, say work with this living this condition of uh, a living being, and. Uh, and act in a way that the karma that leads to the end of karma that we, that, that the, we are able to work with these lives in such a way that that rebirth process doesn't continue anymore and again that uh, the Buddha another of the of the imponderables or the the the, the, the questions that the Buddha said was wrong question was like well so when rebirth ends kind of quote unquote where do we go and the, and the, the response is wrong question <laughs> And uh, so, in the Buddha's dialogue to, with Upasiva, one of those Brahmin students, in it's in the Sutta Nipata, the, the the one of the, the late chapter, the Parayana, the Parayana way to the beyond, I believe, in the uh, in the um, at the end of the Sutta Nipata. Uh, then this young student, uh, Upasiva, asks this question: one who is who's reached full enlightenment when their life comes to an end, uh, do they no longer exist? Do they disappear completely? Or do they go to some kind of exalted state? And the Buddha says, uh, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which can be spoken of is no more. You cannot say that they don't exist. But when all modes of being, uh, all uh, phenomena have been re- removed, then all means of speaking have gone too. So where doesn't apply, being doesn't apply, time doesn't apply. <laughs> Like all our usual reference points don't apply, so there's no there's no means of speaking. It's like, what does it look like in the quantum realm? Look, light, uh, seeing doesn't function in the kind of, uh, kind of subatomic realm, so that you can't really talk about it. What, what does a quark look like? Uh, well, it's actually a lot smaller than a photon. So <laughs> you can't say looking. Yeah, appearance doesn't apply to a a quark. Well, you must be. If you just got a really good microscope, you could see a quark. Well, no. <laughs> so that uh, si- the simplicity and directness of the Buddha's teaching, saying it's because of ignorance, not seeing clearly. That's why beings appear in the world, and that's why we continue to make problems for ourselves. And it, it is pitiful, uh, but the what is the 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 good news is that we have the, this extraordinary body of teachings that help to uh, show how to work with this life in a skillful way, so that it can it can ripen in what is beneficial. But it uh, it's not the case that you know. I mean, as the the old uh, English saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So that you can say, look, this is amazing, it's incredible, it's, look what I've discovered, and. They're all good for you, fine, fine. Uh, I'm I'm busy over here. And that people uh sometimes it's it's too much of a sacrifice, too much of a loss, or just too challenging to to let go or change one's habits, change one's perspectives. So you just uh, in a way have to leave them to it. I had a when shortly after I'd arrived at Watanachat I had a um 
I have very, very, very rarely do I have any kind of visual impressions in meditation, but I, I do. Uh, I do tend to dream quite a bit. This was a, a very vivid dream I had, uh, and I was just uh, been at what Nana chat about six months or so, and I don't know why, but in this in this dream it was very vivid, and I was a Native American, and we had just um, uh, there was this uh, wooden stockade, like a, a wooden fortress, and our tribe had just broken down the gates and and defeated the the white um, uh, the white guys. And so the images coming in through the, 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 the gateway of the stockade and this sort of feeling of joy, like, yeah, well, we, we won. Uh, we're, we're all free. And so I, uh, I kind of go racing through this, this fortress and I found these cells, uh, like prison cells, a line of prison cells. And, uh, and I got the, and I, I, in my memory, there's other, some of our people have been locked up in these cells and that having broken through the gates and beaten the, the uh, the white guys then we now we can set these people free so i go along uh, and i'm looking in the, the doors of these cells and i find this this old school friend of mine like old, and uh, that i used to we were in the same class in school and we did a lot of sports together and then did a lot of carousing together as teenagers and and so um and i kind of I, I open up the cell door, and uh, and he's sitting in the cell with his kind of back towards me, and I uh, his name was Rick, uh, and so I said I said Rick, you know we, we've won, you know, you can go free, and, and he kind of huh? he kind of looks it over his shoulder and then turns around and is paying paying attention to something sort of uh, down in the corner of the room, and I, said, and I kind of walk over and I kind of lean over him and say Rick, you we we won, the the the, the gates are open, you you can. Uh, you can go free," he said. I, I, "I'm kind of busy at the moment." Uh, and, I, I, oh, and so I looked and I said, and I, I looked over his shoulder, and he was knitting. He was knitting. And this is no disparagement to any knitters who are here, but he was knitting, which he never did before. He, become, he was not a, a knitter. He was a he was a very sporty guy. He was a, a kind of a, a world class windsurfer and a, and a kind of a champion athlete at school. So knitting was not, but in this dream landscape, he was knitting, and and that, that was what he was busy doing. And I thought, well, and then, uh, okay, well, he's that's what he wants to do. So I just okay, I turned around and left the door open and took off. So that when I and then when I woke up from that, I thought, well, that was a message. <laughs> it was so vivid, that it kind of. And it sort of stayed with a particular theme. It was very consistent, sort of all the way through it. And that, uh, and then, uh, interestingly enough, uh, when I got back from from England, uh, got back to England, I was in Thailand for a couple of years. And then, after my first rains as a monk, my my father had a heart attack, and I came scooting back to England. And so, uh, when I gone travelling at the in a couple of years before, then you know I had no interest or inclination. I was a kind of carousing uh, kind of uh, uh, more a kind of Dionysian religious devotee rather than anything ascetic um, so anyway that uh, I got back to England was spread that amongst the old sort of uh, uh, college friends and local people and and old school friends that I had returned and then uh, some of the same group that he was a part of they were going to come and visit Again, I was staying at my parents' house, and they were going to come and visit. And uh, he, uh, quote unquote, I couldn't deal with it, and got out and went to the pub instead. So on the way down, I said, uh, when the, the other two or three arrived, I said, "Oh, I thought Rick was coming as well." He said, "Oh, oh he couldn't. He couldn't deal with it. He's gone to the pub." So I thought, mm. <laughs> "Well, there you go." <laughs> that was. I mean, I did meet him again later on, uh, but uh, as time went by, but. Um, it was, yeah, some people, it's just, they, they prefer to stay with the, the devil they know. What to do, as my grandfather would say. Yes, uh, you got a question? Um, yes, Ajahn, I have a question about compassion. Um, I think I'm very familiar with world weariness. I think I've made a career of it, actually. Um, but I find that this wholesome quality of compassion arises 
naturally with it. But it's it's quite hard for me personally to have a balance with compassion um, and to to bring in also equanimity with the compassion and stay stay balanced in it. Uh, it can sometimes feel like you know just falling in a hole of you know um, of empathy, you know, too much empathy. Um, mm -hmm. So that caring, you know, like caring for the world and. and but not being of it, or just caring and not caring. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Well, uh, yeah, that's uh, that last thing you're saying. That uh, there's a famous line of one of T.S. Eliot's poems: "Teach us to care and not to care." Um, yeah, it, it's compassion, like uh, I mean, I do harp on about it a lot. But um, if self-view is involved. It's me caring for for you. I it's my you're unhappy. It's my job to make you happy. Uh, then, as long as there's that polarity of self and other, then it's going to be stressful or burdensome. And so, the practice of compassion that's the more free of, of conceit and self uh, it is, then it can be a genuine, um, uh, helpful, and um, uh, benevolent presence. But uh, it's not burdensome. It's in, in Buddhist psychology, compassion is not a state of suffering. In in English, the word literally means to suffer with, compassio, from the Latin. Um, passio, like the passion of Christ, is not Jesus being excited, it's his suffering. That, that passio is to suffer. So compassion literally means to suffer with. So the Buddhist, um, what we call compassion in Buddhism, is far more close to empathy. So there's an attunement to the suffering of others. It's relating to the suffering, appreciating the suffering of others, but you're not suffering on account of their suffering. So it's like that chant that we do, Buddha, Susito, Karuna, Mahanavo, the Buddha, absolutely pure with ocean-like compassion. So the Buddha had compassion for all beings, but he didn't suffer on account of the suffering of other beings. So it's a lot to do with how the those habits of, of um, selfing get woven into it and that um, uh, and also how the mind gets taken up with effort with a specific goal in mind I want to do this so that you'll be all right uh, and and that um, that kind of getting caught into a like a goal or goal fixated attitude um, and it's far more helpful um, again not to promote my own literature but there's another of those little Brahma Vihara booklets <laughs> called uh, Don't Push Just Use the Weight of Your Own Body uh, which talks a lot about that uh, which is the one on Karuna on compassion it's the one with a red cover <coughs> sort of orangey red cover and um, that uh, that sense of leaning into a situation and so I, I talk about these three principles it's very very wise uh, lay a student of, of uh, the monastery uh, established in his kind of uh, meditation and, and um, uh, sort of physical therapy school he had, a college or, uh, a clinic he had. And it was the, the three principles were don't push, just use the weight of your own body. Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but don't turn away. And so that tryingness and the, so the uh, compassion coming into, so I've got to fix this, and, and if, if it's not fixed, then it's my fault. Uh, and uh, there must be something I can do to fix it and make everything all right and take away the suffering. So that um, that uh, the much more skillful approach of attuning to the situation, feeling the, the, the suffering that's, that's there, and then letting what response... Uh, that is appropriate to arise from that and recognize sometimes things are fixable, sometimes things are not fixable. Sometimes uh, uh, that you, you, know, you can do something which will genuinely end a, a, a particular difficulty, and, and, but sometimes our very effort to help can make it worse. <laughs> and the, and the, our compassionate uh, activity can be a kind of... Um, uh, it's more for us than for the, the person that we're helping. Like, I want to be useful, and it's more about me, making me feel better rather than the other, the, uh, other folks. So, 
but uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a, a big subject. But um, that uh, one of the things uh, uh, a story I often tell is when when I in those early early days at Wat Nanachat when I was a novice there, one day this this Thai man came to visit, and it was after the meal time and everyone it was sort of late morning and for some reason I was still around the sala all the other monks and novices had gone back to their kutis in the forest and this visitor showed up and he very unusually at that time happened to be able to speak some English which is very uncommon in the, that region and so we got talking and uh, somehow the subject of compassion came up and, and, I, and I talked about how I was always very anxious for the welfare of other others and always sort of took it very personally and tried very hard to 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 relieve the suffering of others and if I felt if if they, if they were still suffering after my best efforts then it was my fault they would continue to suffer and he was so sort of listened to that and he said well um, it, with respect to that I do what I can do uh, but what I I can't do I don't create any problem about I know that if I could do more I would do more but uh, since I can't then why create more suffering around that? Then you got two suffering beings instead of one. And I thought, wow, this had never crossed my mind. That, that, that pattern of thinking had never crossed my mind. And he said, I trust that I'm a, I'm a kind-hearted person. I, I know if I could do more, I would do more. But this is the limit of what I can do. So why suffer about something that I can't do? Then, then there's more suffering in the world. And so I know I, I know I care, uh, and uh, and so it was that was a quite a turning point for me. I never had thought of it in that way, but that was a that was a great blessing. So to continue, if we see according to the law of nature, it can be said that we are practicing dharma. We will see that we humans are not different doesn't matter which village or province or country we hail from. If we really look, we will not see differences. In the beginning, we're born. In the middle, there is change. And in the end, we disappear from this world. It's the same for absolutely everyone. So the Buddha wanted us to contemplate morality and dharma, to see that they are same as us, and we are the same as them. Then there can be understanding and forgiveness, because we're all the same. We are all kinfolk in birth, ageing, sickness and death. We are, all mem- we are all members of one clan. If we know this, there is a sobering urgency born within the heart. When we contemplate this body, we know that we're all the same. Someone else's child is like our child. Others' parents are like our parents. Our own existence is like that of someone else's. Someone else is just like us. If the mind comes to see in this way, there's an end to harming, to envy and strife, to aggressiveness. Seeing like this is right view. If there's right view, it is path. When view is right, then thinking is right, action is right, livelihood is right, speech is right, effort in meditation is right. Everything is right, having entered the path through right view. If we're doing this, there is always Dharma practice, no matter where we are. So that uh, that sense of um, unity, and often uh, one of the classic ways of, of beginning Dhamma talks, at least in Thailand, I don't know about, don't know about other Buddhist countries, but um, uh, it's quite common in Thailand to begin a, a Dhamma talk by saying, um, uh, sisters and brothers in old age, sickness and death. There's a kind of, that's, you know, good evening. <laughs> sisters, are, that, that's how we are. We're all one family in that, uh, that unifying principle. And then, as he says, our children are like other people's children. Our parents are like other people's parents. How could they really be be different? And that um, the the quality of understanding and forgiveness uh, uh, is arising out of a sense of uh, making space for each other to to not uh, not be perfect, and that we're all um, say that. A sense of empathy or attunement, appreciation. The mind is, isn't caught up in biases or, or judgments about a person because of their their age or their gender or their nationality or something that they they've done. But rather, you know, we're all in this together. We're sharing this together. We're all kind of um, on this uh, this. We're all in this lifeboat together. We need to look out for each other. We need to look after each other. We're all we're all in the same boat, uh, literally. 
and so that that quality of forgiveness <laughs> and understanding and and uh, accord with each other naturally arises from that. The Buddha taught us to look at ourselves. He didn't point up at the heavens or down to the earth, at the mountains, the clouds or the sky. The Dharma is something that is with us. If we come to know ourselves, attachment and grasping start to wither away and decrease, to back off. It's because of seeing this, it is because of seeing that this can happen. If there's no seeing, there is no decrease, no breathing room, so no decrease to to the detachment to the attachment and grasping. Practitioners of Dharma should know how much fruit is born of their efforts. It's not that one practices and has no idea. One should definitely know, know what's going on with oneself, whether one is practicing correctly or wrongly, what kind of results one is getting. If people do not know this yet, they're not getting any fruit from their practice. There's really nothing going on. It's just like they're doing things because someone told them to, blindly following along with the group. Someone told them, so they do it, with nothing happening on their side. The Buddha wanted us to have wise discernment, to be astute and employ wisdom to see and know things in the present moment. It's not a matter of waiting for death so we can know. If we don't see and know now, we will not know later on. We must see now. So this is um, uh, a, a, a strong encouragement, uh, a kind of a, an assertion from Lumpur Cha to you know, know yourself. And it's a frequent question, like, how do I know whether I'm progressing or not? Or I don't think I'm getting anywhere. Yeah. It's a very, very frequent um, uh, complaint or, critici- or, or, or wish that people express. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, there is also the uh, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. There's called the the mirror of the Dhamma. When this question comes up, how do you know whether you're uh, whether you're progressing? Uh, how how spiritual development is is taking shape? And so it, it can be difficult to be uh, objective in that. But um, it's uh, the uh, uh, one thing that we can do is consciously using wise reflection. And uh, there's an example that the Buddha gives again, when it, not in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, but in a different teaching, where someone says, "You know, I, I don't seem to be getting anywhere. I've been practicing for these all these years, and you know, how, how do you know what sort of progress is being made, or how can you tell?" And uh, the Buddha said, "Well, it's rather like uh, if a if a carpenter gets a new saw or a new adze, like a, a a tool for hollowing out a log." And that they, uh, they uh, when they get this this new tool, then the, the handle is of a, a, a very um, sort of clearly cut shape. And they use that tool, that saw, say you know, every day for five years. And after they've used it every day, after five years, then the imprint of their fingers and their thumb are there in the handle because of of uh, them using it all the time. And it's their their hand, their fingerprints, their thumbprint. And he said that you you can't really say. Each uh, each day exactly how much has been worn away, but after five years, then the the imprint is definitely there. So he said, you know, if you look back um, at your uh, and use your memory and your powers of reflection investigation, and you look back uh, a number of years and you think, well, how would I have thought about this? How would I have handled that? If if I am praised, what does the mind do with it? If I am criticized, what does the mind do with it? You know, if I meet with success, what does the mind do with it? If I meet with failure, what does the mind do with it? If uh, how did I used to react to physical pain? How do I react now? Uh, how do I uh, deal with with conflict? How did I deal with it then? How do I deal with it now? Just using your ability to investigate and then look looking back and then looking at uh, how the mind works with things today. That's how uh, an, uh, a direct method. Of, um, uh, of say getting a, a reliable measure <coughs> it's also um, that encouragement to, to know for yourself is uh, in the Kalama Sutta which is this um, very very well known teaching when the Buddha was passing through a village called Kesaputta it's called Kesariya nowadays um, near, Vesa, uh, it's near Vesali in uh, I think Uttar Pradesh uh, these days, and uh, so he's walking through this village of Kesaputta, 
and the the the, the clan there, the, the the villagers were called the Kalamas, and they uh, asked the Buddha, said, "Well, we get many many different wanderers and yogis and summoners and sannyasins coming through here, and they each have a different philosophy, and they they explain things in their own ways, and each of them say, I'm right, and the others are wrong. So how do we know what's true? How do we know what is re- reliable?" If they're all, they're all so confident, but their their teachings don't match each other, so how how can we tell? What, what can we take as um, as true? So then the Buddha then gave a set of ten criteria to not follow. <laughs> I couldn't I can't name all ten. I haven't memorized the whole lot. But it's uh, things like don't believe something just because it's handed it's what your 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 family believes and it's it's told to you by your parents. Don't believe it because everyone else in the village or the local area believes it. Don't believe it just because it makes sense through logical reason or uh, through deductive reasoning or inductive reasoning. Uh, don't believe it just because it's written in a in a holy book, uh, or some. Sp- uh, don't believe it just because a spiritual authority uh, tells you that it's true. Um, but rather, listen to a, a teaching, put it into practice, and see what the effect is. Does it lead to harmony between yourself and others or not? Does it lead to peace of mind or not? Does it lead to uh, to division and confusion in yourself and, and in others? Uh, if it, if that's the case, then take, uh, leave it aside and don't follow it. If it leads to to harmony, if it leads to peace of mind, if it leads to to well being for yourself and others, then take it and follow it. So you you know you look and see, like you try it out and you see what the result is. So. If it leads to division and confusion and agitation, okay, leave it aside. Uh, and if it leads to benefit and peacefulness and harmony, then, then take it and use it. So that encouragement to be your own experimenter and then trust your own experience is, is really a, a hallmark uh, of the Buddha's teaching. And what Lumpur Cha is referring to here, or encouraging here, um, that... Um, and because um, so, also him in the role of a of an ajahn in Thailand, people would continue you know, regularly come and say, "Lumpur, can you tell me where I'm at? How far have I progressed? You know, <laughs> am I a stream enter? Am I an anagami yet?" And so that that uh, again, people wouldn't get a very pleasing answer. Dong <laughs> Ruang, you have to know yourself. And uh, he said, "Don't ask me, ask yourself." That that would be the usual kind of thing he would say. If we investigate the body until there is dispassion and detachment, we'll see that we're like the bird in the trap or the fish in the tank. The hunter or owner can take us out and destroy us at any moment. Our limbs, senses and organs, our bodies can break down on us at any time. Such is the characteristic of these things. We cannot stop it from happening. They will not obey our commands. Why? Because they're not real. They're not actually ourselves. Nothing dependable. They're not really and definitely our legs, our arms, our eyes or ears. That is conventional reality, mere designations. They are only spoken of as ours. If we all contemplate these things, these heaps, the aggregates of form, feeling, perceptions, thoughts and consciousness, you can call them the five aggregates, the dharmas of name and form, Namarupa, or simply mind and body, uh, which is what it all comes down to then it is not something else, not something far away. So that, that um, uh, again, he's, he's underscoring that um, the, uh, the important thing uh, in terms of, of you know, if, we, uh, if we want to uh, develop in the practice is cultivating this, this direct sense of, of, uh, of the body as being part of nature, uh, and that uh, uh, the things that we take to be ours, uh, then we're we're going to be uh, dip- <laughs> we're going to be say appraised of the fact they're not really ours. They don't really belong to us. They don't obey our commands. And so the illusion of control, like I can I can decide to move my hand from here to here at, at the moment, but there'll come a day when I I can't move my my limbs. Like for Lumpur Cha, he was literally paralyzed. So. Right now, there's the illusion of control. This is my hand; I can do what do with it what I like. So, this is my body; I can I can do what I like with it. I can't fly up in the air from this chair, or I can't spontaneously become invisible. 
Um, so there is a, a limit to the kind of things we can do with the body. We can, but we get focused on the limited area of control or, or uh, agency, and which I would say like is about one percent of the picture, and the other ninety-nine percent, <laughs> which is really out of our control. All the utuniyama, bijaniyama, the laws of physics and chemistry, biology, and and the chitaniyama, the the laws of the mind, they they leave our a scope of a view and so it's like bringing the the whole array into the picture and recognizing that things are only our legs our arms our, our arms and eyes and ears uh, are by being designated that way or it's a conventional truth it can't possibly be be anything absolute so any questions thoughts yes thinking about why does this ignorance exist? Does Buddhist uh, teaching has a response about it? Where there is no discernible, well, that, yeah, there's no discernible. Uh, yeah, that, uh, one of the um, uh, th- one of the most helpful teachings starts off with by the Buddha saying, "You can't discern any starting point where you where it can be said." Before there was no ignorance, and after this point, then ignorance began. You, that, that's impossible to to designate that. So that that so that kind of um, again, it's one of those imponderable things. Uh, those imponderable qualities. Uh, so it starts off by saying you can't um, you can't say that, that up to this point there was no ignorance, and then ignorance appeared in the universe. But he said, but ignorance doesn't arise without a cause so this is um, it's in the book of the tens the numerical discourses I think it's number 58 it's called the Avijja Sutta the ignorance Sutta on ignorance and he says so what is the the proximal cause the immediate cause for for ignorance and what what's its fuel what's its support and he says the, the five hindrances sense desire ill will dullness uh, restlessness and doubt and what's the proximate cause? What's the fuel for the five hindrances? And if, and then he says it's the the three uh, unwholesome acts: unwholesomeness in in, in action, unwholesomeness unwholesomeness in speech, unwholesomeness in thought. And what's the the fuel for those three unwholesome uh, tendencies? And then he he says it's uh, lack of res- uh, lack of sense restraint, indriya samvara. What's the fuel for lack for for lack of sense restraint? There's a, a lack of mindfulness and full awareness, sati sampajanya. What's the fuel for the lack of sati sampajanya? Uh, and then uh, he says it's, we think it's the um, uh, lack of wise reflection. Then what's the, what's the fuel for the lack of wise reflection? And then he says it's uh, the lack of wise reflection is based on uh, lack of faith. Uh, when that what in this what's the fuel? What's the cause for the lack of faith? Lack of faith is the fuel of it is not hearing the good dhamma. And what is the fuel? What's the the the, the support for for not hearing the good dhamma? Uh, not drawing close to good people. Sapurisa samseva. That's the root. That you can say is the the root of ignorance is not drawing close to good people. So uh, I probably haven't remembered all the details correctly, but you can look it up. I think it's Book of the Tens. I think it's Sutta Fifty Eight, the Avijja Sutta. But then he says, but if there is, then the kind of <laughs> so if you counted, there's only nine in that 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 recension. But if there is Sapurisa Sanseva, if you do draw close to good people. Then that gives the occasion to listen to the good dhamma, sadhamma savana. So, and then if you listen to the good dhamma, good teachings, then faith arises. With, with the arising of of faith, then uh, that that uh, feeds the the quality of of wise reflection. With the, with the quality of wise reflection, then that that feeds uh, mindfulness and full awareness. The mindful, if there's mindfulness and full awareness. That supports indriya sangvara, restraint of the senses, like being responsive rather than reactive. If the mind is responsive and not rather than reactive, that supports 
the three kinds of, of wholesome actions, wholesomeness in thought, wholesomeness in speech, wholesomeness in action. And that uh, supports the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. But the development of the four foundations of mindfulness, they are the fuel of support for the development of the seven factors of enlightenment. And the seven factors of enlightenment are the fuel of the support for full uh, uh, the, the, the knowledge uh, uh, of, and full awareness of, uh, of liberation. So, and then he gives this example to just as rain falls onto the hills and then forms into little puddles and they form into little streamlets and the streamlets run down the hill and form into 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 tarns or bigger pools and then those feed into small small rivers and then big rivers and they all flow to the ocean. So then this is how uh, knowledge and liberation is filled up and also how ignorance is filled up through the other causal process. So the avijja sutta. So, but it, it starts off by saying there is no first cause, no first point is discernible. Um, that uh, he, uh, and I think that's a, a great skill, just like when you say, what's the ultimate beginning of things? Uh, it's one of the achintea, it says the thought and concept don't, don't, you can't encompass the reality of, uh, of that, so don't bother trying. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's just <coughs> finish this section. The Buddha said, Bhikkhus, whoever watches over their minds, they shall escape the snares of Mara. A snare is like a, a trap for an animal, like a, a loop of wire that an animal gets their, their foot or their, their limb in and they, it tightens up and they can't get away. It's a, uh, the trapper's snare. Uh, they shall escape the snares of Mara. But do we really know the mind? It tells us to cry, and we cry. It says, laugh, and we laugh. When it says to crave something, we crave it. These things are not so difficult to see. The mind should actually be easy to teach. But people don't teach it. If it gets angry, discipline it immediately. Take up the stick and it'll behave. But we don't train ourselves like this. If we really did teach ourselves, oh, how could we sleep like we do? When we sleep, it would not just be a matter of falling into a stupor every night. Teach yourself this every day. When you put your head on the pillow, contemplate the in and out breath. Think to yourself, how about that? Tonight, I'm still breathing. Tell yourself every day. Sorry, tell, tell yourself this every day. You needn't, do your, you needn't do a lot of chanting and recitation. Am I still breathing? You wake up in the morning and think, Hey, I'm alive. The day passes, the night comes again, and you ask yourself once more. Ask yourself, If I lie down, will I get up again? Rest for a little while and get up. When you get tired again, ask yourself again. Day after day, you have to do this. If you keep at things, sorry, if you keep at it, Things will come together, and you'll see. You'll see the truth of what is taken to be self and others. You'll see what is convention and supposition. You'll understand what all these things really are. Then, that which is heavy becomes light. That which is long becomes short. That which is difficult becomes easy. But you have to generate enthusiasm. Then it can be done. If you're one of the lazy ones who just wants to sleep, what will you get from that? Any questions or thoughts on that? I think Lumpo Cha was very good at these extremely simple reflective practices. So if you just trim it down to, um, am I alive? <laughs> am I still breathing? <laughs> and to to um, uh, just use the, um, the that kind of uh, reflection that when you put your head on the pillow. And I, actually, I I, uh, I do this. Uh, every day, that's a, uh, when I, I put my head on the pillow, then uh, I, uh, I quite consciously recognize, okay, this could, this could be my last breath. This one could be the last one. An out-breath and no in-breath. And uh, that's, that's my sort of standard practice for putting the head on the pillow. And, uh, so uh, it also improves your sleep. <laughs>
<laughs> you might think it would improve your anxiety. Think, ah. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to think like that. But uh, I found it improves uh, the sleeping process. But just okay, all the things that I think I'm in the middle of. This, if this is the last breath, this is not. I thought I was in Act Three. This is actually Act Five, Scene Five. <laughs> It's not the middle of the story, it's the end of the story. Oh, and so then it also puts all the, the context of all the things, the, your your half-done projects, the the, the, th- the meetings that are about to happen, or the, the conversation that you need to have with so-and-so. But if this is the last breath, what does it say about who's going to organize the washing up tomorrow? <laughs> have I written that, that email to remind somebody about that meeting? The world will keep turning. If you take a boat out of the water, it doesn't leave a dent. So it's a very skillful way to, and and very balancing way to to function. So I, that's a a daily a daily practice I I follow, and um, with great benefit. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? And it's not just when you put the head on the pillow, it's like all through the day, it's the same. <laughs> Every breath could be the last one. So, yeah, when you reach to pick up a glass of water, I, you might not get to drink it. <laughs> when the, one of the um, other <coughs> teachings that, uh, that I often refer to is where the, the, um, the, there's a slightly different version in the Chinese a sutra called the Sutra of Forty-Two Sections, but they're they're, they're related but not not identical. So uh, the uh, the Buddha is sitting with a, a group of sangha members, and he asks um, he asks them, "How do you practice mindfulness? How do you develop mindfulness?" And then one monk says, "Venerable Sir, I contemplate that a human life is is not more than seventy years, and and bearing that in mind, that uh, that encourages my." quality of mindfulness and the Buddha said you don't understand my teaching then the next one says 60 years and 50, 40, 30, 20 10 years, 5 years you don't understand my teaching uh, 3 years, 2 years, 1 year you don't understand my teaching half a year, 1 month, half a month you don't understand my teaching 1 week, uh, 1 day and 1 night you don't understand my teaching and the, the time it takes to eat a meal you don't understand my teaching and finally it gets to the last two that say um, one that says uh, the, the time it takes to uh, to eat to swallow a mouthful of food that you have already chewed, and then another one says the the uh, the time it takes to go from the beginning to the end of a, of an in breath or from the beginning to the end of an out breath. And he said, "You understand my teaching." And if you time that, it's about three or four seconds, by my reckoning. <laughs> So that's what we can reasonably, that's a, a reasonable expectation of a human lifespan is another three or four seconds, which I think medically is quite accurate. If you have an aneurysm and a blood vessel pops in your, your brain, you've got three or four seconds before everything goes uh, goes dark and you, you, you uh, the whole system shuts down. So that's not very long. <laughs> but uh, uh, that uh, that's uh, the... the um, the the way the Buddha encouraged the quality of uh, mindfulness and, and going back to urgency, Sangvega, it's like if only if I've only got three seconds to get it together, okay, <laughs> buckle up. Yeah. And in the Chinese version, in the Sutra of Forty Two Sections, uh, he uh, is, is phrased a little bit differently. Um, uh, in that in that. Uh, in that sutra, it says he. It starts off with the Buddha asking, "How long is a human lifespan?" And then similarly, they kind of get shorter and shorter and shorter. And then it's similar. And then it comes to that same kind of conclusion um, that it's just uh, from the the length of an in breath or the length of an out breath is uh, what we can consider to be a, a human lifespan. All the rest is extra. So again, that might feed your anxiety. <laughs> I haven't got enough time. I need more time. You know, I, I don't need this pressure, Ajahn. But uh, if uh, if we really take those those teachings to heart, then it, it really puts the world into a different perspective. Like if you've only got three seconds left till till it's all over, then so 
a lot of things you don't have to do tomorrow or tonight. <laughs> Just let go of everything. So I'll leave it there for today.